You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. Amen, and welcome to this service, our first sort of fully formal 1130 service in our four-service format. So thank you for being here today. You picked the right time. The right time. Thanks for being here today. If you're new or you just came last week, my name is Morgan, the lead pastor here, and I am very fortunate, or for all of you Christians here, I'm very blessed. Very blessed to have an amazing family. If you don't know them, uh, not only do I have an amazing wife, I have four children, uh, three boys and uh, a daughter. But I also have an amazing extended family as well because about a year and a half ago, my wife's in-law, my wife's parents, and her uncle and her grandmother, so my in-laws, all relocated here from Southern California along with the rest of you. And so they came here, and not only did they come here to Austin to be near us, they came to be near us, near us us because they moved into our neighborhood and around the corner from me. And so it's sort of like my own private Everybody Loves Raymond episode uh, every week, all week. So holidays and birthdays, as you can imagine, are always a lot of fun. And recently, my wife celebrated her birthday. She turned 29 again. It's amazing. Happens every year. And my mother-in-law, who is incredible, made a delicious cake for us to share. And as you can imagine, in a group that size, that large, one cake is going to go pretty fast. And so one of my sons who is normally, he's so generous and he loves food. He loves life. He says he wants to open a restaurant one day. But uh, my son decided when he saw that cake that he was going to do something strategic with the cake so as not to miss out on the cake. Because when you're a kid to miss out on cake is like a disaster, second to only Christmas being canceled or something like that. But anyway, after the cake had been served, I went back to inspect the remains of the cake and yes, perhaps to assess my own cake future for the next day, only to find that my own son, my own flesh and blood had not just taken one piece, he'd not just taken two pieces, he'd taken three pieces and he had hit the third piece in the pantry so as to save for lunch at school the next day. Yeah. And normally again, he's, this is our most hospitable child. So generous. He, he bakes for us, makes us our coffee. He's amazing. He can be so thoughtful, but here he had his eyes on the prize eyes on the prize. Now as his father and the primary influence in his life, I have no idea where he learned how to behave in such a manner. No, no clue. But anyway, while I admired 
His goal setting, always good to show initiative in a 12-year-old, uh, and the surprising forethought in the matter, which could help him later in life if rightly applied. I said to him, but I said, that cake, it wasn't just for you. It was for all of us. It wasn't just for you. It was like for your siblings and especially for your mom who may or you know, may not have wanted to have the second crack at the cake. But here's the point. In that moment, it seemed like something great was only for someone. To that child, it seemed like the cake was only for him. And of course, to us, it seemed like the cake was only for him. But it seemed like something was only for someone. And I think that's how a lot of life feels like sometimes. I think a lot of times it can feel like the best things in life are only for some, but not for all. Sometimes it can feel like the best schools are only for the rich, or the powerful, or the wealthy, the well-connected. Sometimes it can feel like things like human rights are only for those who live in certain countries, maybe just for those in the West, but not for all. Sometimes it can feel like things like justice or, or safety for only those with certain Skin colors, but not for all. Oh, but the writer, the writer of this letter, he was a a first century Christian, someone who shaped Western civilization in a profound way, someone named Paul. He makes an astounding claim right here. He makes the claim that God has something, not just for some, but for everyone. For everyone. Paul, as we're going to see, he makes the claim that God has something for everyone, not just for the good or the bad or the weak or the strong or the privileged or the poor. Paul makes the claim, and we're going to look at it throughout our time in the book of Romans, that something called the gospel is for everyone. In other words, he's saying God has something for you and for me and for us and for the whole world. He doesn't just have a cake for some. He has the gospel for everyone. So what is that? What is the gospel? Well, that's, that's actually what the whole letter of Romans is all about. And we're going to see multiple facets of it throughout our weeks as we go along. But right here, off the top today, I just want to give you one word, one thing, one idea that Paul uses to describe the gospel, this thing that's for everyone. Yes, the gospel is a number of things, but right here, off the top, Paul says the gospel looks like God's, here's his word, salvation. Salvation. Look at verse 17. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings, there it is, salvation to everyone who believes. Now, right away, if you're sort of skeptical of words like this, of words like sin or salvation, and maybe you left the church and you're just coming back, or you came back last week and you're sort of kicking tires, and words like this make you real uncomfortable, words like salvation or sin, or how about these words? Words like hell or damnation. Maybe you left over words like that because you saw them used to sort of beat and berate different groups. Or, or maybe you're just confused about what they mean because those words are used, yes, at the same time by our general secular liberal culture as a way to deride churches and faith groups. And so our meanings and our feelings about them are all mixed up. And if that's you, I feel you. I hear you. Oh, but consider the words of someone named Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a writer, a former Episcopal priest, and she wrote a book called Speaking of Sin... The lost language of salvation. And this is what she says for all of us who have a hard time with words like these. She asked the question, why should we speak of these words anymore? Why should we use them? She writes, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. 
human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace, since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. So she's saying that these words are important and that we'll never get, we'll never grasp what God has for us. We'll never get the gospel if we give up using these words and applying them to our lives. So don't get thrown by that word salvation. At least give me a chance today to show you why Paul is using this word and why I think you should love that Paul is using this word. And as I do that, I'm just going to let you know up front, I'm going to be a little shorter than normal today because we're ending in a little different way today. We'll get to that. And now some of you may like that I'm going a little bit shorter. Some of you may not like that, but either way, I'll just say this. I am not ashamed of the length of this sermon <laughs> because it will be the same for all who listen. All right. All right. How can Paul say that the gospel is salvation? For everyone who believes. Now, to answer that question, I want to look at one kind of salvation that Paul shows us the gospel brings. There are many kinds of salvation it brings. We'll see those in the weeks to come. In a few weeks, we'll see there's a kind of public salvation. Later on, there's what's called a permanent salvation, Romans chapter 8. But today, I just want to look at what Paul shows us when he shows us the gospel is a kind of personal salvation. Personal salvation. That the gospel isn't, hear me, just something, isn't just salvation for something out there, but that it's salvation for someone in here. So what does personal salvation look like? Where does it begin to show you the way into that? Let's just look at the very first words, the first line of the first chapter of this book of Romans. Look at what Paul writes, very first words. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Romans 1.1, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So he's saying, Paul's saying, I have been set apart for something. Now this phrase literally means in the Greek, to be separated. But if, 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 if Paul was separated for something, what was he separated from first? See the difference? What was he separated from? Because things don't just separate for, they separate from first. If you've ever cooked, for example, and you've used eggs, what happens? There's separation. Uh, sometimes marriages don't make it. And what happens? There's separation. Sometimes you've been to that amusement park, right? And those people, they get uh, on the ride and you don't in that line. What's happened? Separation. Yeah, one thing is separated from another first. So then what's Paul been separated from first? Because he's saying, I've got a new life. And if he's got a new life, he's been separated for. That must mean he's had an old life. He's been separated from first. What was it? Well, in Paul's old life, he was someone called a Pharisee. You may have heard of him. They were a first century religious group. They made their living being really, really good. Like really good, squeaky clean. And Paul is saying here, he needed to be separated from a life of being really, really good. Mind blown. 
Now, it's easy to look at Paul and say, especially if you're a skeptical person, well, sure, Paul needed to be separated from that kind of life. I mean, real religious or rule-obeying people live like that or insecure. Uh, They're judgmental, they're condemning, neurotic. But hear me, what Paul is aiming at here, we're going to see, is far more sophisticated than that. And to use another word, far more devastating than that. And let me show you how. Like I said, uh, a few moments ago, I have three sons, and they all play baseball, thankfully. And a couple of years ago, one of them won uh, an end-of-the-year all-star tournament in dramatic fashion. Now, uh, I've told the story before. I'm doing something a little bit different today, as you'll see. And and this team, just to catch you up if you're new, uh, my son's team came from behind. Last inning, two games in a row in the championship game. Last inning, two outs, they, they won it. And what made it particularly challenging and rewarding was the behavior of the other team's head coach. This coach bullied our parents, insulted my wife. How about that? Taunted our, served him right, you know, only to lose. Anyway, taunted our players, cursed our players. These are 11 and 12-year-old boys. Now, what you may not know is how the story ended and what happened next. Even though after we won, here's what happened next. His son was the catcher, and, and the catcher tried to repeatedly injure our players throughout the game, elbow them in the head, step on their feet with his cleats. And when we came from behind and won that last game, and his son went to the line to sort of do the shake the, the hands in line thing after the game, when his son went to the line, he didn't shake anybody's hand. Rather, he personally insulted every player with their face. Now his father overhears this, comes running in from the side, grabs his 12-year-old son by the back of the neck and hauled him off the field into the darkness of the parking lot beyond the fence, screaming at him for everyone to hear, you blankety-blank. He cursed him. He said, I am ashamed to call you my son. What was that coach doing? Well, Besides, I don't know, twisting his son's identity, being a big jerk, he was also exposing what Paul is showing us. Paul needed to be saved from, separated from, it was, it is, the desire to save the self through some kind of performance, one or another. In Paul's case, it was his own moral performance. For this coach, it was his son's athletic performance. The coach couldn't handle it when his own son lost all his meaning and worth or tied up in his son's performance and behavior. When his son won and did well, the coach was happy. He was saved from a life of no meaning. But when his son lost, behaved poorly, a kind of hell broke loose inside him and spilled out into the world onto his child. I think, I think hell looks like a father cursing a son in the darkness over a baseball game. I think hell looks like a father cursing a son in darkness over a baseball game. But Paul, Paul would also say hell looks like him trying to obey every rule. Just obey every rule. How could I say that? Here's why. It's because of the singular crushing word the coach used that gives us the clue to what's really going on and why we all try to save ourselves and why we need to be separated from an old life. It was the word Ashamed, yeah. The coach said he was ashamed of something. Isn't that fascinating? Of all the words he could have used, and let's just acknowledge he should have used a lot of different words there. But in that moment, he used the word ashamed. Why? 
He was using that word. He was using that word because he was describing the experience of, the pain of, the soul cry of the human condition when self-salvation experiment fails. When self-salvation fails. See, that feeling of shame, of uh, being ashamed. It's just like, it was like water coming through a crack in that coach's damn head. There was just a whole lot more hidden behind the wall that he left out, that he leaked out into the world. There was some kind of, use a Bible word, some kind of idol all up in there, driving his behavior, driving away. He felt like he needed to, that Paul needed to, that we feel like we need to measure up to. See, Romans 1.1 shows us we, needed to be, we need to be separated from, saved from. That thing, that old life, that coach's actions and words. Listen, let me tell you, that's just a case study. It shows us a heart boiling over with shame. And today, if you'll look and you'll see where you feel that way, where you've acted that way, where you've behaved that way, whatever's going on. Let me tell you, if you'll look in your own heart and see where the water boils in your life. Hear me, at the bottom of that is something you need to be saved from. Me too. So on one hand... Where the waters boil is always different. It's that child's performance that makes you something. It's your job performance that makes you something. It's having that relationship status that makes you feel something or secure. Where the waters boil is always different. But hear me, what makes the waters boil is always the same. It's always just a variation on a theme. The impulse for self-salvation hardwired into the human heart and the shame that comes from the thing that we don't get that feeling that emotion that behavior let me tell me that that's just a smoking gun that's the evidence if we're honest will lead us to a kind of righteous judgment we need to be saved from ourselves but did you notice did you notice what paul says at the end of the passage out of all the words he could have used To describe the effect that the power of the gospel has on the human soul. Look at the word he chooses to use and what he writes. He says, for I am not, what's the word? Ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believes. He's saying, yeah, there's all kind of reasons you feel shame, experience shame, something in there that's driving that behavior, all the ways that you live apart from God. But the reason he can say he's got the one thing that he's not ashamed of is because he's got the one thing, the gospel of Jesus, that actually has the power in it to move out, to push out all the things that drive our behavior and bring shame. He's showing you, hear me, that an idol cannot just be removed. It's got to be replaced by the greater power of an expulsive affection. See? Oh, he's saying that I got the one thing that can end the way human beings twist their children, do violence to their neighbor, and ignore the poor, all that stuff. The gospel has the power to save us from self-salvation, that impulse. But listen, remember Barbara Brown Taylor's words? Ignoring words like sin and shame, oh, it won't make that thing go away in your life or mine. Ignoring it will only leave us powerless before it. You and I, hear me, need something more powerful than the power of self-effort to deal with the power of self-salvation. You say, how can I get that? Like this. Paul says there was a someone who came into our world, and his name 
was Jesus. He was a human. Paul says he was a descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. Jesus was like, like a king who's come to save his people. Oh, but in a stunning turn of events, if you know the story, the king became a commoner. He died this common death on a Roman cross. But this common human wasn't common or human after all, or only human. He was also, Paul says, the son of God. He says, with power. Why? Because he was resurrected from the dead, showing that he can bring now any heart out of the hell of self-salvation and bring salvation to all who believe. Believe what? Oh, the gospel, which is now this. It's believing that Jesus Christ came to save you. He lived in your place as the perfect person. He gave the performance you could not. He died in your place experiencing the shame of not just public, but divine rejection. Worse than that, dad gave that kid on that field. And he was resurrected to bring supernatural power into the human heart and human soul and to rescue us, to use Barbara Brown Taylor's word, from the ultimate damnation that comes from the effort to save the self and live apart from God. And why did Jesus do this? Come on. It's because he loves us. And he loves you. And you. And you. And you. That's why he did it. He made himself vulnerable, exposed. He was shamed on those bloody pieces of Roman wood. So who's the gospel for? For all who believe it. Paul says, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, all ethnic groups. It's not a cake for some. It's something for everyone. He's got the courage, humility to acknowledge, I need saving. So what does that look like then? Last question. What does that look like in a heart that's been saved, a human soul that's, 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 that's been saved? I'll show you that I've got one more story about another baseball team. Now, I don't always do sports stories. I don't always tell sports stories. But when I do, I tell too, apparently. <laughs> got lots of stuff I talk about, stories I tell, things we talk about. So if sports isn't your thing, it's all good, no worries. Lots of people, it's not their, their thing, their stuff. I just think this second story will help you see something that wasn't in the first I've got a, a friend of mine, he's a professional baseball coach, he's a member here in this church, and he, he played in college himself, and he's coached countless kids from like little league level all the way up into college, and we were having a conversation recently about the sport, and about games, and kids' activities, and all that, and afterward, he, he sent me this in like the world's longest text, uh, and his heart, which is, he has been saved by Jesus, so I want you to hear what he says, because what he shared stands in utter contrast to the other coach. He wrote this. He said, Morgan, I had a 12-year-old team one year ago, 0 and 36. 12 tournaments and 0 and 3 every weekend. It was painful. Meanwhile, our other 12-year-old team finished something like 55 and 15. I was watching them in their last tournament of the year, and they were up 8 to 2 with one out left to get. Everyone in the stands and on the field were ready to burst open with excitement for the team's first win. I even had my perseverance always pays off speech ready to go for them i even had my assistant get the other winning team warmed up so i could stay and bask in the sweet taste of them achieving greatness i then watched the complete train wreck unfold as the other team came back to win it was one of the most deflating situations i've ever witnessed not only in baseball but in general i'm talking gut-wrenching sorrow for these boys quick takeaway 
Four of those kids went on to play college baseball, discussing that season with them later in life proved to be a jumping off point for them. In turn, that season crippled some in regards to athletics and ushered them into other areas that proved to be more suitable for them. Each found a way for that season and those experiences to shape their lives in a way that nothing else could have, in my opinion. He said that, Morgan, I know you know this, but it's worth writing. The game is just a game. The pressure to perform is fueled internally and often fanned by external factors, parents, friends, community, etc. The way in which we win or lose reveals so much more that can be used to build from than just the numbers on the scoreboard. When we realize that the win or the loss does not truly matter, nor is it the true measuring stick, we are set free from apprehension and can be present in the moment, thus allowing us to perform at a level higher than we are accustomed. It's not bad, is it? It's pretty good. Did you hear that? That's a heart because he's my friend. He's a member in this church. It used to be a slave to performance. Used to come down on kids. Oh, but it's been changed from the inside out. No more shame. No more to use his word. No more apprehension. No more fear. Why? Because perfect love has cast out fear. He's saying, I've got no more false measuring stick. No more self-salvation. No more hell unleashed in my life, my kids, my family, my future. Just freedom. What did he find out? He found out. Same thing you can. The gospel is for everyone. It's for you and it's for me. My day was February 26th, 1995, which was a, a Sunday, as you all remember. The A.D. Bruce Religion Chapel, the University of Houston campus. I had grown up in church, maybe like some of you. Tried to be good like many of you. But I failed like all of us. And I gave up on being good and I settled for being a hypocrite maybe like some of us. But Jesus came to me that, that day. I came into the meeting like this, not expecting anything to happen. Just thought I was showing up again. But I felt Jesus now pulling on my heart, surrender to his grace. It was changed from the inside out. That day was my day. Maybe today can be your day. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.